1: you haven't already rated and reviewed the Singletracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show, and if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, And today I'm going to be looking back at some of my favorite podcast conversations of 2021. And if you've been following along with the podcast, you know, we've interviewed a number of interesting folks in the mountain bike world, and we've covered a lot of ground here, you know, as the editor at single tracks, we try to put all of our content into four sort of main categories, and those are trails. Gear progression and community. And looking back, we actually covered all of those right here on the podcast as well. And so this week, I'm going to be recapping some of my favorite episodes that we did on the topic of mountain bike trails. And for those who have been following single tracks for a really long time, uh, you may recall that we started out actually as a website focused just on mountain bike trails. Leah and I started the site, actually, to share information about trails that we had ridden around the southeast, and then later we started riding on the west coast of the U.S., and so that's really how Single Tracks got started, and we still love to cover trails and advocacy and trail building and the environment, and so those are all things that we have covered on the podcast this year So one of my favorite episodes was a conversation that I had with Tyson Swayze and Tyson is a mountain biker trail builder who has lived in Moab, Utah for pretty much his whole life. And so it was really cool to be able to talk to Tyson and to really get an insider's perspective on the trails there in Moab. The thing that I found most interesting from our conversation was Uh, sort of some of the history of Moab that Tyson shared, um, talking about, you know, how Moab developed as a mountain bike destination. And really the fact that Moab was kind of the first mountain bike destination. Well, it seems like Moab was a mountain bike destination before there even were mountain bike destinations. And I, I find that so interesting because there are a lot of great places to ride around the country. But, you know, even in like, the nineties, I remember, you know, that's all anybody talked about was like Moab, you know, I live in Georgia, I live on the East coast (laughs) and people were talking about it. Like you have to go ride Moab. What, what is it that you think makes the area so great for mountain biking?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it, I mean, what got Moab really like that early foot in the door with, uh, being an easy Mecca is the slick rock bike trail, Mm -hmm. uh, was you know, that was built by motorcycles and established, uh, designated in 1969. Um, So there was already this piece of single track, it's all on slick rock. So, you know, it was just painted on the rock, Mm -hmm. um, but it was already there. Um, And then beyond that kind of talking about, you know, we kind of mentioned like, uh, because of the uranium mining, there were just survey roads and mining roads going everywhere. Mm -hmm. And by the time the eighties hit, you know, those roads were starting to kind of get worn in and uh, starting to erode away. So they were getting a little rougher and they were more than just like these graded roads out through the desert. So that made them a little more exciting and Mm.
3: uh,
2: a little more entertaining for biking on. Um, And so that was a big part of it. Another thing that's pretty funny is when you talk to people who were here in the late eighties and early nineties, above and beyond Slick Rock, the first guidebook for the area was already here. You know, the, I can't remember Was Todd Campbell wrote that can't remember. I mean, you come to Moab and you're just hearing about it and you look on the counter and there's already like this inch, inch thick book of like places to mountain bike. Yeah, And you know, they were just, he was way ahead of the curve with writing that book. Um, so from early on, they'd already figured out a lot of these routes, um, you know, it also helped that rim cyclery opened in 1983, oh, wow. like Oh right on the cusp of like mountain bikes becoming a thing. You know, they were one yeah. of the first specialized dealerships in the country. Um, and they were just an overall gear store for climbing and rafting and everything else, but, um, quickly jumped on mountain biking and kind of started, uh, pushing that for the area. Yeah.
1: Well, you mentioned that slick rock has been around since what the late sixties. How did the first trails get built? Like, were they kind of social trails that people in town were riding? Or was there like an official push to like get actual trails built in the area?
2: Yeah, through, you know, up until pretty much 2000, you know, all through the 90s, what was making Moab famous was all the old Jeep roads, all the old mining Hmm. roads. Hmm. Um, We had nine miles of single track in the area that consisted of (laughs) kind of what's still our most advanced trails, which is Porcupine Rim, mm-hmm. um, now more commonly known as the Bottom of the Hole Enchilada, uh, <laughs> Jackson Trail out on Amosavac, and the Portal Trail. And beyond that, there was almost nothing. There was a couple mm-hmm. of moto single track trails that had been built, but, um, you know, it was really like Amosavac Jeep Road and Porcupine Rim keeping, keeping that, uh, mountain bike Mecca kind of status going. Hmm. Um, Intel Fruita really, I think was one of the big turning points for Moab. Fruita started building mountain bike single track. Uh-huh. And I think that was like a big kind of like, wait, you can, you can do that. That's a thing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember I was working at Rim Cyclery at that time I was in high school and, you know, all the bike shops were noticing this little bit of a dip in um, visitation. And it's because, mm-hmm. you know, people coming from Denver weren't going as far because Fruta had all this single track all of a sudden and right it wasn't all this gnarly Jeep road that we had around here. So it was a little easier too for people and a little less less rough on the bikes and body.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that is really what spurred uh, Grand County Trail Mix to become formed And Grand County Trail Mix is a county committee that um, represents all non motorized uh, recreation for the area. Mm -hmm. So it's hiking, it's biking, it's equestrian use, uh, snow sport, climbing access. Um, And they started working to develop single track however they could. Hmm. Um, And so that was kind of the, the beginning of it was around late 90s or, you know, early 2000s. And that they didn't really gain a whole lot of traction until 2010 is when we really started building a lot of single track. Hmm. Um, You asked about um, like user created trails versus you know kind of how they were built and really we haven't had a lot of user created trails. Some of the slick rock routes in the area Mm -hmm. were kind of user created. Um, The whole enchilada or the original route uh, was was a user created route using kind of hmm. existing hiking trails and some cow trails yeah um that kind of over the years got parts of it got closed and then rebuilt and hmm. um by the land agencies so uh, but most of it was most of the you know the bulk of our trail systems have been done um legally and fully designed and everything well next up on my list of favorite conversations
1: from the year is actually someone who introduced me to Tyson, uh, Ashley Korenblatt. So Ashley also is based in Moab and she's the CEO of Western Spirit Cycling Adventures and founder of Outer Bike. And she's also the managing director of Public Land Solutions, which is a nonprofit that helps with recreation planning and coordination. Basically, it's a group that helps get mountain bike trails built. Uh, and she also worked as an IMBA board chair. So Ashley had a lot of things to share about how trails get built. And she really takes sort of a pragmatic approach to getting trails built, understanding that there are a number of different stakeholders in various communities. Some of them are mountain bikers and they're stoked to have trails, others, not so much. And, you know, they may have competing interests that, say we don't need trails or we we'd rather spend money on something else or use land for different purposes so perhaps the most interesting topic that we discussed in our interview was about the public land solution stance on mountain bikes in wilderness and this has become a kind of a controversial opinion among mountain bikers even mountain bikers don't agree on whether this is something that should be pursued Obviously, there are groups like the Sustainable Trails Coalition, who we have interviewed on the show before and who have shared opinion pieces on single tracks as well, who are advocating for bikes and wilderness, uh, while Public Land Solutions is actually uh, saying that we don't need that access. So here's what Ashley had to say about that. Like, how do other outside groups see mountain bikers? Like, are there ways that we can improve kind of I guess the way we're seen by other groups in, in terms of being champions of the environment and conservation, or are there other strategies we could use to to get us more access to, to lands and and to have these communities trust mountain bikers more?
4: Sure. So um, now we're going to get to wilderness here in a second, but um, it is um, well. Let's just go to wilderness. You ready? <laughs>
1: Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. What is the PLS stance on wilderness access for mountain bikes?
4: We do not believe mountain bikes should be in wilderness. And uh, neither does Imba. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. But But when you ask yourself as a mountain biker, whether you think a bike should be allowed in wilderness, you need to do two calculations. And the first one involves mileage. So Let's look at how many miles of trail there are. There is in wilderness, or, or that's kind of affected by wilderness right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if anyone in the whole bike industry would benefit financially from access to wilderness, it would be me. My day job <laughs> is to take people on backcountry trips um, in remote locations, right? And so when I do that calculation, I see. The 100,000 miles of ready-to-rod trail in the U.S. right now, and I see about 1,000 miles, maybe, of wilderness. And even maybe maybe 1,500 if you stretch it to some really unlikely wilderness bills that might someday happen but are super unlikely, right?
1: Yeah! Wow. So that's yeah, that's incredibly small. I mean, is that right? And and these are trails that I guess exist for hiking. I mean, is most of wilderness then just no trail, nothing? I mean, it's just land. Is that kind of the status?
4: No, no. There there are historic trails through a lot of these lands, but they are mostly point to point trails. So. Mm You know, there's some places in Montana that uh, Montana is a lot of basin and range. So relatively small mountain ranges and then big basins in almost every range. There's a trail that goes through that range. Right. And that was created. Oh, you know, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And some of them have some good riding on them. And some of them have three 45 minute hike of bikes and a four hour car shuttle to get back to your car. You know, (laughs) right. So and the number of people that can really do that is pretty darn small. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm not saying that some of those trails we want to keep and they make great aspirational big deal rides. But mm-hmm. are they economic drivers? Not really. Not enough people can do them and they don't concentrate use in a certain town. They spread it out too much over, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this don't work. But the main point is you need to make a decision are you going to the map for that 1000 miles? Do you think that we should use all our resources to try to join Senator Lee in his um, effort to get bikes in wilderness that, that you know, the Sustainable Trails Coalition pushed? Or are you more interested in the hundreds of thousands of other miles that we can build?
1: Is, is this then, I mean, to tie back to the, the previous question, I mean, is this affecting then sort of the groups that we work with that, that, it actually is hurting us by supporting bikes in wilderness.
4: Right. So that's the second calculation that you have to make. And that is Senator Bennett from Colorado put it best. There's only two kinds of people on the planet right now, people working to fix climate change and people in the way. So which one do you want to be? And if you decide that you really want to ride your bike in that 1000 miles of wilderness, then you're going to be one of those people in the way (laughs) because- Mm. The Wilderness Act is the founding legislation for the modern environmental movement, and because in the bringing it to the Biden administration, they're working on this thirty by thirty initiative, protecting thirty percent of the public of of land by the year twenty thirty. Okay, that's a good thing for mountain bikers. The more green space there is, the more places there will be to ride. So you shouldn't Mm -hmm. think that the word protection means, um, no access by protection. They mean that we're just not going to drill it or dig it up or otherwise poison it. Yeah. So land in its natural state is a good thing for, for mountain bikers, but you can't really be, you, if you want bikes in wilderness, you're not for 30 by 30 and you're on the wrong side of a whole bunch of conservation organizations that have a whole bunch more members than we do mountain bikers.
1: So another group of folks that I always enjoy speaking with are mountain bike trail builders. And perhaps none are better known than Tony Boone. Tony's been building mountain bike trails for more than 30 years. And he literally helped write the book on the topic, uh, EMBA's Guide to Building Sweet Single Track. And so Tony now is still building trails uh, and he's actually teaching a college level trail building class in Colorado and so I asked Tony a number of questions about trail building one of the things I wanted to understand is how mountain bike trail building has changed and evolved over the last decade here's what Tony had to say
5: well I'll say this we always focus on sustainability so I I would say that most of the trails I've built over the last 35 years are still in really good condition uh and I feel most uh, accomplished about that. Um, even though I was a mountain biker and even though I was younger, I never built trails out of ego. I did not build my trails to get the Instagram shot and, <laughs> then, the, and then the trail fall apart in six months. Uh, I built because I built to what my clients asked me to build. If they wanted a green trail, and I like to ride black diamond, guess what I built them? I built them a green trail. If I wanted a black uh, and my crew likes to ride green and I like to green, I still built them a black. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, refresh my question on that.
1: Well, I guess the follow-up question to that, you know, yeah, we're talking about sort of how the early trails compared to, to trails being built today And it sounds like you had a pretty firm understanding of, you know, what is sustainable and that sort of thing. How did you learn that? How did you establish those best practices early on?
5: Uh, Well, there was definitely some trial and error, uh, but I I tried in the 90s to take quite a few trainings. Uh, My mentor was Jim Angel. Uh, He's the one that told me the, you know, you need to get inside of the head of the trail user. And he's also the one that told me that people don't need trails; the land does. Huh. We can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. But also, just a variety of people like Hugh Duffy, some other folks in National Park Service. When they would offer these trainings, I would I would go take them, and you know, luckily the county would pretty much pay for me to do that. You know, there was also a variety of private projects where I had friends, uh, and we would basically build trails on their property. So, you know, I would say, how have the change trail? trails that i've built changed over the year number one i think i've learned a lot i definitely have learned from my mistakes mm-hmm. where i pushed grades and poor soils or whether i had changed in, in in flows too abruptly that led to you know stutter bumps or breaking bumps before the corner mm-hmm. but you know over the years as you learn that uh, the interesting thing about that is is, is you really never quit learning <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Because you're at a new site with new topography, new soils, you know, different kinds of natural and cultural resource concerns. But the other way, really, that trails, I think, have changed over time is those projects that we were bidding on uh, in the 90s rarely had a bike component or mountain bike people, mountain bikes, bikers as stakeholders. Hmm. So from a flow trail standpoint, you would say those trails are boring. Today, for some people. However, as time went on, you saw more of that bike optimized theory invested into these trails. Mm -hmm. Many clients, these land managers that received grants for these uh, trail projects written by the mountain bike advocacy clubs, allowed those mountain bikers to, you know, really develop a trail that satisfied those needs of the mountain bikers. And of course, in the last 10 years, uh, especially with the just off the world Disneyland stuff that they've accomplished in uh, Northwest Arkansas.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: it, it's just mind blowing how we've been allowed to push the evolution of trails on public lands. I mean, here's an example. I remember, uh, I think it was the Sharp Trail, no, it was the Ringtail Trail, which is outside of Denver, it did it for Douglas County Parks and Open Space. And I thought, uh, I was always into uh, rolling gray dips mm-hmm. because they get water off the trail but yet all mountain bikers can kind of boost over them. Right. Beginners can, advanced can, depending on how fast you're going, you can launch a long ways or you could just get weightless a little bit. <laughs> and I put two of them close together cuz I wanted to double it, right? <laughs> right. I to, and I got I I, I got comments and concern, you know, they're too close together. You know, the horses are not going to like them. Mm-hmm. That is basically they needed to go back and take one out. And and it was true. I would kind of pushed it. My crew and I, maybe we had a little bit of ego to it and we kind of, you know, valued our mountain bike thrill over that of the horses, the equestrians and the hikers. But, you know, those types of trails back then were somewhat of a new thing. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, you know, you've got contracts going out to bid that are like, you know, we want a flow trail or, you know, we want a jump trail.
1: So another big theme for single tracks is the environment, and so I also wanted to ask Tony about how trail building fits into the idea of sustainability and land stewardship. And here's what he had to say about that. Well, earlier in our conversation, uh, you quoted Jim Angel uh, saying that people don't need trails; the land does. I'm interested to know what does that mean to you.
5: What does that mean to you?
1: I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out, honestly, and that's why I wanted to ask you. I mean, what? how does the land need, need trails?
5: Yeah, so it does perplex many people except land managers and trail builders and what it says. And he told me this in 1993. Uh, his company was Core Plan. He's passed away now. A crusty old scotch drinker, Jim. But this thing has stuck with me, and I've shared it with literally thousands of people around the world. And his statement is, people don't need trails, the land does. So have you ever been to a new park that doesn't really have a trail system and people are just out there wandering wherever they want?
1: (laughs) No, you don't see that often. I mean, there are plenty of places where the land is preserved and there is no sort of access to it.
5: We have a number of places in Colorado that if you pull up to the parking lot, you might have 20 choices of trails to go up that fall line. Mm. Not, not a single one of them designed contour.
1: Yeah.
5: They were trails created by social use. People not really thinking or educated enough to know that they're potentially harming the land. They just want to get up to that high point and take a picture of the beautiful mountains. A million people do that over the decades and now you got 20 30 trails going up it looks like a bowl of spaghetti okay same thing going down to like a water feature you know like everybody's got to get to the creek or the lake and so basically you end up having non-sustainable trails that create a loss of soil which is one of our key natural resources ultimately you can impact the vegetation the wildlife habitat uh, and essentially ruin an area that's where we got that saying our area is loved to death. People aren't really doing it on purpose, you know. But once again, once you see a couple social trails or you see a couple pieces of litter, I think human nature is just to not be so concerned about creating another hiker trail or walking off trail or dropping that gum wrapper. You know, it's litter breeds litter, social trails breed social trails. So then you have rogue trails. Many trails were built at night in many places. You know, you look at Fruta. Uh, and Troy Rarick out there with over the edge bike shop, all those trails on 18 road were illegal. Now they're all designated trails. People from around the world seek out that place. Mm-hmm. That place was a defunct bankrupt little farming community. Now it's expensive to live there and it's a cool as hell place to live.
1: So sticking with the environmental theme, one of the folks we interviewed this year is a guy named Doug Bleese who is located in Scotland. He's a mountain biker and also an environmental researcher. He's also a member of EMBA Europe. So one of the things that mountain bikers often get blamed for unnecessarily is trail erosion. And it seems to be a big topic of debate among different user groups. And so that was one of the first things I asked Doug was about the potential types of environmental impact that erosion can have on trails and here's what he had to say well let's talk about some of the specific potential types of environmental impacts that are associated with trails and the most obvious one to most mountain bikers is erosion and soil compaction what are some of the concerns here that are specific to mountain bikes as opposed to other groups like you know hikers or equestrians
6: Oh, that's really interesting. I've kind of followed the, the hiker, equestrian, mountain biker comparison, division, argument debate um, <laughs> Yes, for quite a while. And I find it, because I have a background in studying countryside management, and a big part of that is access, mm-hmm. and Scotland's access laws are, are really open and quite sort of world-leading in that respect.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: It's something that you know, a countryside management geek like me, you kind of watch, i watched from the sidelines with great interest, and <laughs> you know, try and be impartial. But I suppose, in one way, we could look at erosion and soil compaction. I, I believe that there's enough, enough studies out there now that says that there's no significant difference between in erosion between mountain bikers, horse riders, and hikers or trail runners. Okay, I but. But when I look at that, I think, has that been looked at on the basis of a constructed land? What we probably don't add in there is then every time we dig a wild trail, essentially that's a, another form of erosion. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not even riding the bike at that time. It's just people on the ground digging. Yeah. So we're eroding the land before we even ride it. Uh, so that... When we look at those studies, I, I, I kind of like what the scientist in me, then says, "Well, what hasn't been accounted for in that study? If it's just tire tread on a trail, then bikes probably don't promote trails more than any other land use." It, it starts once you start to
1: scrutinize
6: it. I think it starts to unravel a little bit, and maybe not totally in our in mountain bikers' favour. Mm. A, a badly dug wild tra- natural trail, which drains really badly. Is, can be really erosive. I mean, essentially, we can see trails now that, like a fall line trail straight down a hill that, that you've just dug yourself a stream. <laughs> yeah, it, it will. It will just when it rains, it will run with water. And whether you're riding or not, it's eroding.
1: Right. And when we look at that too, it's like it's like how much more could you know one really strong rainfall. A road, an area compared to you know a hundred or a thousand passes by a biker or a hiker i mean what we're really talking about is water and water management and kind of making sure you're accounting for that right
6: yeah definitely and i was recently sent uh there was an imba video on uh, trail construction and the the angles of fall dependent on the the gradient of the hill and it just made complete sense and you know you just think oh wow if we could only get every trail digger whether they have permission or not to sit through the hour and 20 minutes of that video that, that would be incredible
1: i also asked doug about what we can do as individuals to minimize the impact of our rides when we do go out here's what he had to say you know even if we're not building trails what can we do as riders to minimize our impact aside from you know having an impact and then like mitigating it elsewhere. What can we do actually on our rides? Like is skidding bad? Like is that the thing (laughs) that we should stop skidding or, you know, should we avoid wet trails? I mean it seems like there are even just within the way that we choose to ride, there are ways that we can minimize our impact. What, What are some of the top ones, the ones you think would be like kind of the most important?
6: Skids and skids and wheelies are just what it's all about. Surely. <laughs> if you if you if you if you like to skid, but then at the same time you're not engaging with your local trail builders or tra- trail association, then yeah, you're having an imp- you know you just ha- you're not even having an environmental impact. You're having a social impact right. because you're you're expecting somebody else to come and fix that corner that you just skidded around.
4: Yeah. So
6: it's like this little bit of. Um, Well, hey, if that's the kind of person you are, I I don't know any mountain bikers like that. So, uh, we're talking to a mountain bike audience, right? Yeah, the more skids you do, the more you should donate to your trail association.
1: Yeah, but again, that's yeah. I mean, I guess I guess what you're saying too is yeah, that you don't necessarily have to to stop skidding. I mean, you can still have fun, but but as long as you're giving back as long as you're you're also the one digging and and putting the trail back to the way it was
0: yeah
6: Uh, one of the questions i asked the riding community when we kind of first got started with the trail association was does the the weather dictate where you choose to ride and of course lots of lots of people might not have an immediate choice of where they ride based on time or location Mm -hmm. but generally i think the way to minimise our impacts, really, in the context of uh, where I live and, and the lack of formally built trail uh, trail infrastructure, which has got a, a durable tread and is drained correctly, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we're relying on our natural capital to provide us trails. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if you, for for the people that know me and you know listen to this podcast and might just take one thing from this it, it, in the context of scotland really why not find out more about the habitat you're riding in um what what the natural features are mm-hmm. and really that should enhance your experience but also it will give you that sense of custodianship over the land and you might choose your riding choices will di- will dictate Um, will be dictated by the environment and what it can cope with. Mm -hmm. So So we deal with a lot of wet weather. But actually, we get this really great run of beautiful dry weather that can take us right through summer, autumn, into early winter. And so you can ride any trail without really having a thinking of an impact, environmental impact of erosion. But then suddenly, it starts to rain and snow and it's pretty wet and horrible. And it's like, okay, so what do you choose to do? Do you choose to trash the trail so that it's completely trashed for everybody for the rest of the spring, just so that you can have a ride because it's the weekend and you have to ride or other choices you, you can make. Um, so so there's that element in terms of like the land, like have, more about where you're riding, what lives there and what should be avoided. And then, learn more about what the, the type of geology that you're riding on and, and what that how that is affected by weather conditions if you happen to live in a part of the world like me which is very negatively affected by weather conditions <laughs> so,
7: uh,
1: yeah and-
6: global, global impacts so thinking about transport and travel that has a carbon output um, your purchasing decisions those are the really big hitters that you can have to minimize the impact of mountain biking on the planet. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that those should never be forgotten. It's not all just about bad, badly dug or badly ridden trails.
1: Yeah. So over the summer, we started a podcast series within the podcast called ride like a local. And one of the <clears throat> bloop, and one of the first uh, destinations that we focused on is Bentonville, Arkansas and Northwest Arkansas, uh, because obviously that's an area that's growing a lot. And we're hearing a lot more about it, but not everybody has had a chance to ride there yet. So we reached out to Anya Bruin, uh, who is a Northwest Arkansas local, uh, who is the education program manager for Bike Northwest Arkansas and so we talked about what makes arkansas unique in terms of a mountain bike destination and one of the things that anya mentioned is that northwest arkansas is much more affordable in a lot of cases than some of the traditional mountain bike destinations here's what she had to say just thinking about northwest arkansas as a destination it's seems to be unique in terms of like how accessible and affordable Uh, trip there would be compared to, you know, going somewhere like more resort style or or a place like that, you know, thinking out West Colorado or, or Utah or somewhere like that, where people are going to spend a good bit more to stay and to access the trails and all that kind of thing. It seems like Arkansas is set up to to be much more affordable and accessible.
0: I think so. I've been to other places and I know that it's, you know, sometimes you got to Pay to get a shuttle here and you gotta pay to get a shuttle there and and um you know passes for the lift. We don't have any lifts, so you don't need passes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. You just
0: need legs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or you can bring your e-bike. So I mean you that like, that's unusual as well you for can, a lot of destinations. And you should so bring you can... your
0: e-bike. <laughs> right. So
1: if if you need a shuttle, bring your yep. own.
0: Yeah. And
1: yep. you'll be fine. Sweet. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I always ask folks in the Ride Like a Local series is about new trails and developments. And in Northwest Arkansas, it seems like every month there's a new epic trail system that opens up. In fact, we do a monthly recap on the website of a list of all the new mountain bike trails that have opened around the world. And... It's rare literally that there's not a month where Northwest Arkansas or the state of Arkansas doesn't get a mention. So here's what Anya had to say about some of the newest trails and developments there. Well, this, this potentially could be a very long-winded answer but uh, I want to know about plans to expand or improve trails in the area. I don't imagine things are going to be slowing down anytime soon. So, what are some of the like bigger or more interesting projects uh that are coming up in the future?
0: They're always expanding. <laughs> areas like I said, areas outside the main corridor are a potential for um getting in on the action. There was a system um, at Mount Nebo that just opened up recently. And then, of course, there was a, an enduro race that happened there, um, pretty close to um, pretty close to that opening. Um, you know, little towns like Huntsville, I love Huntsville. Um, it's beautiful and mountainous, like uh, some of the other places wish, wish that they were. And a lot of it is, you know, undeveloped private on land. Um, there's a, a huge potential in that area. As far as projects that are on the radar, (laughs) there are things that I don't have any idea are on the radar.
1: Right. Yeah. You just show up and they're like, Hey, new trail.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You said it's hard to keep up from, from an outsider's perspective. I'm an insider and I can't keep up. Yeah. I bet. It's always um, on the horizon to try something new, to try something different. A lot of these, a lot of these um, projects are, you know where some of these companies kind of cut their teeth and learned to do what they do, um, and so going back and reworking those projects as they have new techniques or new ideas that they want to try out, mm-hmm. it's it's always expanding. It's never not. There's a lot of momentum for creating even more family friendly places um, where there are all the amenities that a family would want. You know, bathrooms, changing areas. Um, Plenty of water, parking, you know, multiple, multiple level trails, um, bike park kind of things and just trying to create, um, you know, the best iteration of what a family would want, um, out of one space. Yeah. There's always room for improvement and there are are some crazy ideas out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the sense that I get is that, you know, at this point, there's plenty of mileage and, and that's not to say that like big trail projects aren't still being opened. And I'm sure there are more being planned, but it seems like what I've seen also is just more of these kind of, as you alluded to, they're, they're more like showpieces for the builders and doing things that are really unique. Like. Riding through a waterfall or like, you know, through a helicopter or whatever, like stuff that that you're not going to find anywhere else. And kind of also filling in, like you said, the gaps in terms of like, you know, we don't have an enduro trail. I mean, we've got a few like enduro type things, but like, let's build an enduro trail that's like the enduro spot and um, making sure that there is something for everyone So after talking to Doug about mountain biking and the environment, uh, he actually referred me to a friend, a colleague of his named Douglas Cartree, uh, who is also in Scotland. Um, but he's done some mountain bike studies and consulted. And one of the things that we talked about was the impact on wildlife that mountain bikers may have. And this is kind of a newer one, you know? Over the years, like I said, a lot of outside groups have blamed mountain bikers for problems with erosion. And you know there's been countless studies that have sort of refuted that and said, well, mountain biking is on par with a lot of other trail uses. And so uh, these other user groups can't necessarily single out bikers for that. Um, but so the, the newer argument is that mountain bikes are more disruptive to wildlife. Uh, just due to the distances that riders can travel um, and the speeds that they carry. And so the question I asked Douglas was, is that true? Do mountain bikers tend to bother animals more than other trail users do? And this is what he had to say. I want to ask you, do mountain bikers tend to bother animals more than other trail users? Or or is it about the same uh, for like hikers or people on horses or things like that?
8: Um, so it kind of, it varies um, certainly with Caper Cayley, they don't necessarily disturb them as much as other users um, it's thought that other forest users such as dog walkers probably cause the biggest disturbance um, with dogs off leads running through the forest um, mm-hmm. and people walking or moving quite slowly, whereas mountain bikers who move quite quickly through the, through the forest and um, mm-hmm they might you know scare that animal initially but actually right. because they're gone they're, you know they're gone reasonably quickly and uh, mm-hmm. things can then kind of return to normal and um, rather than that person walking It takes quite a long time to to move out with the area mm-hmm. um, but the biggest issue that mountain bikers have is how far we can travel so we can travel really deep into the forest mm-hmm. onto trails that maybe get used once a week Um, Mm and so that's when we kind of start to see issues is on these trails that are further into the forest and which is kind of where species like caper kelly are are inhabiting and away from people Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. they're kind of more used to people on regularly used trails but it's on these these sort of trails that are deep in the forest that they they have issues and because they're not expecting anything basically. Uh, so it's that, that's kind of, yeah, that that's where mountain bikers always an issue.
1: So getting back to the ride, like a local series, uh, one of my favorite interviews of this year was with Todd Branham and Todd and I have known each other for a while. He's been on the podcast before. Um, but Todd lives in the Pisgah national forest, uh, in North Carolina. He's a professional trail builder. He also directs a number of big races and events in the Pisgah area, including the Pisgah stage race. And so this was one of those interviews where, um, I had a good bit of knowledge about the trails I've ridden in Pisgah for many, many years, but there's always something new. And so when I asked Todd, if there were plans to expand or improve trails in the area, his answer sort of caught me by surprise. Here's what he had to say. Well, you mentioned that, uh, generally there aren't plans to expand or add new trails within the forest other than maybe some connectors here or there, a lot of rework being done. So what, what are kind of the plans to expand or improve trails and and are there trails being built outside the forest, maybe on private land or other areas like that in the future?
3: Yeah. So, um, there are definitely some, um, it's interesting you asked that because um, there is a big push in Transylvania County in particular to go to our western part of the county to Gorges State Park, which is another fantastic park. has no trails in it, though. Hmm. And there's been a big push to put trails in there over the years to give some relief to DuPont and Pisgah. Okay. But nothing's happened. Mm -hmm. So recently, um, there is a private owner that backs up to gorges that owns 92 acres that um, has trails in there that wants to improve them and then donate it to the conservancy for public access. So, um, you know, because, again, over in that area, there's just not a lot and there needs to be something over there. So that's exciting. Um, Tons of private stuff going on. Tons of it. I mean, everywhere. But, but man, the most exciting thing that I think is going on is over in the old Ford area. Mm. Um, there is a collaboration between the U.S. Forest Service and something called the G5 Collective mm. that has put together and been working on now for five years a master plan for trails in the old Fort area. And... I hope everybody's sitting down for this, but the master plan calls for forty-two miles of new trail in the Pisgah National Forest.
1: That's incredible.
3: Forty-two miles, yeah. So it's interesting. Again, if you stand back and look at the management of the Forest Service and look at everything we've been talking about today, and how Brevard is a hot spot, mm-hmm. and then there's three districts of Pisgah. There's um, you've got the Tisga District, which is Brevard, up to the Parkway, Bent Creek, Nashville. And then you've got the district we're talking about now, the Grandfather District, Mm -hmm. which is Old Fort and up towards the Boone. And then you've got the Boone, which is Appalachian District up in that area.
1: Okay.
3: Okay, So, three different districts. And the Grandfather District, it's interesting that the Forest Service looks at what's going on with Brevard, has nothing to do with Brevard, (laughs) and says, you guys have a lot of problems with, like, just we work together, but You know, the Forest Service is not Brevard, Mm -hmm. but yet everybody's coming to the Forest Service. So by default to the lands, the place. So by default, Brevard has this economic boom all of a sudden of like, how do what do we do with all these people? Where do they stay? How do we what do we do? Oh, my God. The roads are falling apart. Oh, my. God, (laughs) Yeah. So so it's interesting to me to see the Forest Service kind of come to the rescue in the lonely town of Old Fort which is deprived of any business and has nothing but is rich in the fact that they are close to Forest Service lands. So listen up, folks. If you want to buy any property, buy it in an old fort because it is going to become the next Brevard. You are going to be able to ride out of old fort into the Forest Service and have 42 new miles on top of the 12 that are already there. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
3: And three and a half of this has already been built. And the next phase will be done in 2022, supposedly.
1: Oh, wow. That's that's awesome. And Old Fort, that's where Kitsbo is, right?
3: That is. Kitsbo, Hillman Brewery just opened up there. Old Fort is changing at an unbelievable rate. Mm. I, I, I can't believe it. There's a place called the Pisgah Ride Room or Ride House that... Um, has great food down. It, it, Old Ford has changed so much in the last three years. It's, it's amazing. And to see what it's going to become, it's, it blows my mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome.
3: But that's very exciting news because uh, it's new trail in the four circles. Yeah. And the key is this. It goes back to a question you asked earlier. What type of trails are they building?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Out of the 42 miles, 20 of it is beginner intermediate. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, that's really different.
3: And in fact, optimize for hand bikes, which is the bikes you sit on and use with your hands.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: So, and then they have all the way up to downhill specific trails, all the way to stuff connecting up to Heartbreak Ridge at the parkway that's going to be uber gnarly.
1: Wow. <laughs> so it is, it's a masterpiece the timing on todd's response was actually really good because this trail system actually hadn't been officially announced yet and so listeners of the podcast got an early take on that new trail system and we're really stoked to see that actually be built and hopefully visit it really soon okay and so finally another one of the ride like a local conversations was with kevin adams and kevin is someone that we've known for many years. Uh, He's with the Verde Valley Cyclist Coalition, which is a trail group that is in the Sedona, Arizona area. And so many riders have heard about Sedona, have wanted to ride there, uh, or have maybe been and really enjoyed the trails. And it's always great to hear from Kevin. He's super enthusiastic about the trails and promoting the area. One of the questions I asked that got a surprising response was about some of the lesser known trails in Sedona. And here's what Kevin had to say. Well, what are some of the lesser known trails where riders can get away from the crowds or those like local only kind of things you don't want to, don't want to share?
7: Oh, well, the trails in Sedona and the village of Oak Creek draw about 3 million annual visitors on them. Wow. Uh, But, yeah, 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 a lot of people will come here on their way to the Grand Canyon or back, mm-hmm. or just to come here just to, to uh, for the for the red rocks. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I've noticed that uh, once you get about three eighths of a mile from a trailhead, mm-hmm. the traffic goes down tremendously. And mm-hmm. with over four hundred miles of trail. Uh, just right in the Red Rock Ranger District, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not all of that's open to mountain biking, of course, because some of it's in wilderness, but, you know, there's mm-hmm. over 400 miles of trail. There's even more in the Verde region of the Prescott National Forest, the other side of the Verde River. It's not hard to escape the crowds. Hmm. And, if and Jeff, if you truly want solitude, I recommend the Dead Horse State Park Trails in Cottonwood. Ten okay. percent of the trail mileage there is in the state park, and 90 percent is the Coconino National Forest. And... I did a 15 mile ride there Saturday. Uh it was uh low up, upper 70s, no humidity, just mm-hmm. a gorgeous day. The only people I saw on the whole 15 mile ride were the other riders of my group.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow, that's surprising, but yeah. um good to know that that most people don't make it too far past the trailheads and so yeah. I guess it's that sounds like even if you pull up and a parking lot looks really full, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be running into a lot of people once you get out there a little bit.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's not hard to find solitude here.
1: And after hearing that answer from Kevin, I actually started noticing this myself. I went for a trail run in the Smoky Mountains National Park over the summer and, you know, pulled up to the trailhead. The parking lot is full. There's people and families and, and, people walking around on the trails. And so I headed out on the trail, um, saw a number of people, but literally within a quarter of a mile or so, there were no more people. Everybody just kind of disappeared and I was off on my own. And, and so that's the good news for us as bikers that we can get out there and get away from the crowds pretty easily, even in a really popular place like Sedona. Another thing that Kevin talked a bit about was, where people are staying in Sedona. And this is becoming a more contentious issue of late in tourist destinations like Sedona and Crested Butte and some smaller mountain towns in the West where a lot of folks are out camping, they're staying in vans, Uh, there are Airbnb rentals. And so I asked Kevin about some of the camping and Airbnb options in Sedona and he actually painted a pretty good picture Here's what he had to say. So, what about places for people to stay? Is there camping available sort of outside of town? And also are I'd like to know about like sort of bike-friendly hotels or other options for lodging?
7: Sure. Uh There's dispersed dry camping in the National Forest outside the Sedona city limits here, or Mm -hmm. uh, like outside of the village of Oak Creek. Uh, And the Forest Service has several campgrounds up in Oak Creek Canyon, along with campsites with showers at Dead Horse State Park in Cottonwood. There's also some RV parks in Camp Verde, Cottonwood, and Sedona, if that's your thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, just note that, uh, especially during the busy season, you know, in the spring and the fall, uh, many of these campgrounds and RV parks fill up. So reserve mm-hmm. early. And then, uh, as we talked about earlier, many of the Sedona hotels and and VOC hotels cater to mountain bikers. They, some of them have bike wash and bike fix-it stations, also, and they also contribute to the trail maintenance as Sedona mm-hmm. Trailkeeper, uh, as I talked about before. Vacation rentals are a touchy subject here mm. locally. The, the Arizona State Legislature took away the ability to regulate them locally, and locals mm. are concerned that some neighborhoods are turning into retail hotel establishments. Yeah. So so if you go the vocation, uh, vacation rental route, just be respectful and manage. And, and imagine if you lived next door to a place that had loud parties at any giving evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I have a vacation rental, uh, uh, the next house down from us. For, fortunately, it's far enough away that we don't normally hear them. But uh, mm-hmm. I do hear them when I'm out walking our dog. And. Yeah. Uh, uh, and every now and again, there'll be a bunch of mountain bikes there, and I'll her on over to Where are you guys riding, and this kind of stuff? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and most of the time, you know, my wife's like, uh, uh, you "Well, know, how come? You know, is it the vacation row?" And you know, I didn't tell her about the time that uh, uh, twenty women rented it, and. Uh, <laughs> It had a hot tub. <laughs> and oh, this wow. night, I'm walking the dog, and they were all out in the hot tub and in and out of the hot tub. That poor dog got the longest walk. In his life. <laughs>
4: that
1: can be distracting.
7: <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there, there's uh, uh, there's no shortage of places to stay here, and uh, like I said earlier, and uh, you know, in Sedona in the village of Little Creek you can ride to the ride. It's, it's that cool, you know, you, and, and, mm-hmm. you know, and you come back from the ride, you know, the hotel, you know, like Sedona Real, Arabella, the Hilton, you know, they all have, you know, bike wash stations, uh, bike fix it stations. Uh, uh, you know, so, I mean, it, they really, you know, they recognize that, uh, uh mountain bikers, uh, you know, are, are, uh, you know, coming here and, mm-hmm. uh, uh you know and if they have the amenities they'll uh they'll attract them
1: yeah yeah well and you make a good point too about um just keeping in mind like being respectful if you are visiting from out of town and um you know hopefully it's not the mountain bikers that are having the loud parties at the vacation rentals and you know i've heard from a number of uh cities and towns that do attract mountain bike tourists they mountain bikers generally have a pretty good reputation in terms of like, you know, we're out riding hard all day. And then by the time we get back, you know, maybe we'll have a couple beers, but we're tired. We want to go to sleep after, after a long day of riding. So hopefully, hopefully that's the case. And and mountain bikers will continue to be welcome in places like Sedona.
7: Yeah. Well, and I think it's more, you know, just, You know, if you live in a residential neighborhood, the last thing you want is, you know, to be surrounded by houses that are really uh, hotels.
1: Finally, I also asked Kevin about plans for expanding or improving trails in the Sedona area. And his answer blew me away by the amount of trail that is planned to be built in the area in the next several years what what are the plans to expand or improve trails within the next year or two are there are there new trails coming online or are some of the trails being reworked that people should know about
7: yep uh, uh in both forests the red rock ranger district of the coconino is working uh, on the the nepa to improve the trail system in the turkey creek area of the mm-hmm. village of oak creek and we expect to break ground as early as our 2022-2023 field season okay. uh, this past field season saw the red rock uh, ranger district contest struck Two new trails, I talked about them earlier, Rabbit Ears and Little Rock. Uh, and the 29-mile Western Gateway Trail System in West Sedona was completed in March 2020. And it started it broke around November 8, 2018, and, and was done uh, in just uh, two seasons. Wow. Uh, and then across the Verde River in the Prescott National Forest, the Verde Ranger District's in the process of implementing its what they call their VTAP, Verde Trails and Access Plan. That's 180 miles of new trail going in in the Verde over the next decade or so. Whoa. Yeah. And the first VTAP project, the Blowout Wash, uh, over the last two seasons, uh, they've completed 14 miles of new trail, and that's near Cottonwood and, uh, and Clarkdale and the mm-hmm. views from up there you get about up to about 4200 feet you see the entire verde valley you see sedona you see the san francisco peaks up in flagstaff i mean it's just gorgeous And wow. you, you i mean you know i mean don't get me wrong sedona is gorgeous too the iconic red rock views but you don't see the san francisco peaks anywhere unless you go way 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 up into the wilderness. Mm. and yeah. you don't see the entire verde valley like you do Uh, over there. And then when they finish uh, their VTAP, it's going to be followed by their VRAP, the Verde Recreation (laughs) Access Plan, and that's going to add another 120 miles of trail over there. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and mountain bikers are going to be able to ride from near the top of Mingus Mountain, that's a little over 7,000 feet elevation, Mm -hmm. drop over 4,000 feet on nine miles of single track to the Verde River, cross into Dead Horse State Park, and ride the Limekeel Trail to Sedona well that's, wow. that's going to be an epic day. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's and uh, I'm sure that once that gets opened, that you know you can, uh, you know, start at the top of uh, Mingus Mountain. I'm sure uh, there'll be some outfitters coming in to do you know shuttle rides. You know, shuttle you up to the top and let you ride mm-hmm. down, and then you know, and then. Uh, and you'd finish basically in Old Town Cottonwood. And there are plenty of restaurants there and, and breweries and things like that uh, that I talked about earlier that uh, you could do. So a lot of, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the Verde has 300 miles more planned. 14 are on the ground. And uh, we're raising money right now to start, uh, they're going to be building the Copper Chief Trail starting this fall. That's about eight miles. Uh, that's going to link what they've been doing uh, towards Cottonwood Clarkdale, uh, heading more towards Camp Verde, and it's going to connect to the Black Canyon Trail. This isn't the National Recreation Trail. This is the Mingus Black Canyon Trail that uh, will eventually get you up to the top of Mingus Mountain. It's just going to be, we're just so excited about it. uh, Yeah. uh, uh, And that will help. You know, the more trails to get in, put, uh, you know, are in the Verde Valley. And there's other things. There's the Sun Corridor Trail that's going to take you from Phoenix all the way up to Utah that's going to come through the Verde Valley. There's uh, just, uh, there's trail development happening in Camp Verde, in Beaver Creek, uh, in Cornville. I mean, it's... uh, you know, the other communities in the Verde Valley are seeing people coming to Sedona to mountain bike, and they're going, we got incredible, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, and there's plenty of, like I said, you know, only 17% of the land here is, you know, is privately owned, so there's public, there's plenty of public land uh, with Mm. easy access, and so uh, trails are just exploding here. It's just, it's, it's just, I'm just so excited and, and, you know, that we're at, at you know, as Sedona, you know, we're running out of space to build. Uh, Turkey Creek's about the last place around Sedona to expand. Mm-hmm. So now it's expanding throughout the Verde Valley. So, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, 714 square miles? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. our playground. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, of course, those are not all of the trail conversations that we had in 2021. There were a number of other Ride Like a Local interviews that we did with folks from British Columbia, from St. George, Utah, from Sun Valley, Idaho. And so if you missed any of those, be sure to go back and listen to them. We also talked to a number of folks about other advocacy issues about trail building and also just the environment in general. So be sure to go on single tracks where we've got the podcast nicely organized. Of course, you can also go back and see the whole list of shows we've done in the last year through your favorite podcast app. Well, next week we're going to be sharing some of our favorite episodes in those other categories that we cover here including progression where we talk to skills and fitness coaches we'll also share a little bit about mountain bike gear as we geek out on topics like saddles and how mountain bike clothing is produced and then also some of my personal favorites we're going to talk to folks from the mountain bike community and so that includes racers and advocates and all kinds of folks so you're going to want to tune in next week to hear those highlights as well That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.